Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. I've turned to the book of John. John chapter 18. A bit of it was just read for us. And as we uh, look at this passage, I, I have a, an honest young woman who shared this uh, in an article. She said, at 11 years old, I was smart enough to know the difference between empirical evidence and superstition. But at 11 years old, I was ill-equipped to deal with the revelation that religion might be a load of rubbish. And there were Christians who were just plain mean. And then there was the issue of doubt, she goes on to say. A nanosecond of doubt would send you hurtling, screaming into the abyss. And that's where I was at at age 14, she says. Caught in a major religious crisis and no one to talk to. It took decades, she goes on, to recover and unravel the mess. And no, I don't want to recover religion. No, I don't want to accept Jesus as my personal Savior. I check the none box, N-O-N-E. I cherry-picked through the teachings of an obscure carpenter who may or may not have been mad as a hatter, and that's it. I've pretty much given up on Christians. They don't get it. Well, by now, this young woman in her 20s is someone's daughter, someone's granddaughter, someone's niece. She's a part of what uh, is called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S's, or those who are older are known as the duns, D-O-N-E-S's. Those who once went to church, once had an acquaintance with Christianity, but now want no part of it and move outside of the church to find meaning and answers in life. When we speak of being compelled by the love of Jesus to bring the things of Jesus to the nations, in many contexts we will encounter people like this. It's not that they haven't heard about Jesus, it's that they have. And what they've heard hasn't seemed very appealing to them. And what they've experienced hasn't seemed very life-giving to them. I have a book that I read, uh, my wife and I read to our toddler. It's called Where's Fergus? And as you, Fergus is a bear. And uh, as you read each page of the book, uh, Fergus gets gradually harder and harder to find. And you have to look for him. And by the end, it's really quite difficult, even for an adult, to find Fergus. And many people feel this way about God in general and Jesus in particular. He is difficult to locate. And so, how do we help people locate Jesus? When their experience of his name 
isn't positive. What is it that causes the confusion? Why is it difficult to find Jesus? First, the first difficulty is biblical religion. We see it right here in verses 19 through 24. These uh, religious leaders believe the scriptures that they have, the Old Testament scriptures. They believe in God. They go to church. They tithe. They evangelize. They live a life that is full of God and the scriptures. But there is an absence of heart religion, to use that old term. Look at verse 28 of John 18. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Do you see the hypocrisy there? They won't, as Jewish uh, believers in God, step into a Gentile's home, a Gentile's office. They won't do that. That would make them unclean. And they want to be clean so they can participate in the Passover. All the while, they are scheming the most brutal injustice and about to justify murder, not only of an innocent human being, but of the Son of God. Using religious ritual to imagine themselves clean, all the while in their heart, is murder and every other vile thing. And notice the stamina for wickedness in verse 28. We passed by it. It was just a little phrase. I'll read it again. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning right there. Pause. It was early morning. They've been up all night. Jesus was brought to them at night in the late evening. As you read through this chapter, Jesus has been questioned by them and struck by them, tied and kept up through the night. And now it's early morning. That begins in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. And by now in verse 28, it was early morning. Isn't that something? Perhaps they were tired of love. Perhaps they had no energy for beauty or goodness, sanctity or truth. But when it came to injustice, they were alive. I walked through the park I'm staying just a, a little bit away, and so I walk. So in the daylight, I walk through this park right here. In the nighttime, I've been encouraged not to walk back through the dark in the park. It's no different where I'm from. I raised the question because where I'm from, you would walk through the park during the day, but not during the night. I just wondered if it was the same here. There are some folks who have 
No energy. They beget bored and tired and groggy when it comes to any faith, hope, and love. But speak of something ill-founded, wicked, harmful, unjust, and they are full of energy. And what they would never do in the daytime while others sleep, they are ready to do in the night. And that's what they've been doing in the name of God. And now it is early morning. They have a stamina for wickedness. And notice their slander in verse 30. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They're now slandering Jesus. Jesus is an evil person. They are saying it not only in their heart, but now publicly on record in a court, as it were, of law. This is their testimony. And notice their avoidance, their deflection of an honest question. Pilate asked them in verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? Notice they do not answer the question. Verse 30, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered over to you. How dare you challenge our integrity? Rather than answering the honest question, which would be, we actually have no basis to charge this man. When we have a stamina for wickedness, even with the Bible open, And God on our lips, we are able to justify, slander, deflect, and expose the violence in our hearts. And no wonder, sometimes it's hard in our world for a person to locate Jesus because they look at even biblical religion and they see violence done in the name of God. Why can people who believe in God grow mean? It was Freud, the atheist, who said Christians are no different from anyone else. They're just engaged in wish fulfillment. And they use the Bible to leverage their own personal preferences, prejudices, and wishes. Other people use other things. And here it is. Something true, the atheist said, is on display here. Earnest, but full of violence, slander, and a stamina for wickedness. And so, someone sees that kind of of church-going, Bible-believing, God-talking stuff, and they want no part of it. And thanks be to God that they don't. They are seeing more clearly than sometimes we do. And so, we say, yes, but that kind of biblical religion didn't have Jesus. Jesus said as much of those same people They read the Bible every day. They read the scriptures, John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you believe that 
In them you have eternal life. But you do not realize Jesus said those scriptures speak of me. And so we're compelled and we want to say yes, yes. But that's not what we're like. We have Christ. And the biblical religion that is confusing to you didn't have him and doesn't have him. And so look at Christianity. Look at the Christian church. And so such a person does And what they might see is fumbling, faltering Christians. There it is, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Look at verse 18. Listen for the repeated phrase. Remember that when gospel writers or biblical writers wanted to emphasize something for us, they didn't have a a big B button, bold, that they could click. They couldn't underline. They couldn't hit italicize. So what they did is they repeated words so that you would hear them more than once. So here we are. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself Verse 18, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. And now if you were watching a movie, the scene changes and it moves to Jesus being tied and beaten and slandered while Peter is warming himself just like the others. And then the scene comes back to Peter and the first thing it says, now, while all that was going on with Jesus, Peter was warming himself. Make no mistake, John's not just talking about standing by a fire and feeling warm. He is emphasizing something. The Christian is now looking out For himself. While the Savior the Christian proclaims is being slandered and betrayed. Sometimes we say in our compulsion out of love, yes, but look at the church with Jesus. And people do. And then like this young woman whose story we began with, it was in a Christian church that her questions were not welcomed, that her confusions were not allowed, that her anxieties were not treated hospitably, that her crisis in faith was seen as a nuisance. And so sometimes we look at the faltering words and actions. Peter not only warms himself, what does he say? I do not know the man. I tell you, I do not know the man. (laughs) And so you look about at the world and it seems mental, it seems crazy. Biblical religion full of violence. The Christians fumbling and faltering and betraying personally what they proclaim publicly. No wonder it's hard to find Fergus. No wonder it's difficult to locate Jesus. 
for someone. And so such a person says, I want nothing to do with religion. I want nothing to do with this Christian, with Christians. This is what comedian Ricky Gervais said. What a, what a um, skilled comedian, Ricky Gervais. A preacher as an atheist with his comedy. But he said this in his holiday message called Why I'm a Good Christian. The atheist says, it's not that I don't believe that the teachings of Jesus wouldn't make this world a better place if they were followed. It's just that they are rarely followed. I've seen such cruelty performed in the name of Christianity. And we could say of such a person, ah, the atheist. But listen, the atheist says something true that we are seeing right here. The language didn't originate with the atheist. It originates with the Bible. Sometimes if you're looking for Jesus, you can't find him in biblical religion and you can't even find him among the Christians. So when people encounter this kind of confusion, what do they do? None and done. Leave the church, leave religion, go out into the world, spiritual but not religious, secular, picking and choosing. And some will even say, if we just got rid of religion altogether, this would be a rational, reasonable, safe, and marvelous life. Because the rest of us non-religious people would be in control and we after all are rational and moral beings. I understand. I get that. But take a look at the spiritual and secular. Pontius Pilate. The words of callousness Intimidation and compromise. Verse 31. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. Pilate's not initially interested in justice at all. He has no interest in the man who is beaten and sitting right in front of him. He you take him, you deal with him. I'm busy. I got too much going on. Verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Callousness. Romans had no regard for Jewish people. Jesus is a part of an oppressed minority beneath a violent majority. Verse 39. Pilate has said, I, have, I find no guilt in this person. Verse 38 at the end, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Look, I don't find any guilt here. So the case is dismissed. That's what a rational, reasonable, moral, secular person would say, right? I find no guilt in him. Dismissed. But what if, 
What if the capacity for meanness isn't just located in the heart of the religious and in the heart of Christians? What if it's located too in the heart of the spiritual but not religious and the civil and secular? Pilate, after all, has a constituency to consider. He has power to maintain. And so what does he do? In chapter 19, verse 1, Pilate, having declared a man innocent, does what to that innocent man? Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and they arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. What is it about secular soldiers who when given power by secular government willingly use their weapons and their bodies to mistreat helpless people. Read the news. That's on display right now in our world. Soldiers given free reign. And some of those soldiers delight in it. Not all. But some. And here they are. Why? What gain do these secular soldiers have in beating up a defenseless person? The sheer joy of it? The sheer delight in meanness? Sometimes someone will say, you do you. You do what makes you happy and follow your own truth. I'll do what makes me happy and I'll follow my own truth. But what if what is true about me is I love meanness? Just do what makes you happy. What a wonderful thing to say. I mean, we don't want to say, just do what makes you miserable. I mean, that's not the news we have to bring. It's a fine, good thing to say, do what makes you happy. But what if the things that make someone happy is meanness? You do what you love. Follow your own truth. I love to kill cats. Well, 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 wait a minute. You can't do that. Well, who says? Well, I mean, I think I and just about everybody says it. Well, I don't say it. I thought you said you do you. You do what makes me happy. Well, yes, yes, but you can't kill my cat. Who says? Which is it? We can do whatever we want that makes us happy. Or there's something that makes us accountable that would tell us we ought not kill cats. Which is it? You can't have it both ways. And here he is. Handing over an innocent man to be beaten. Sometimes people say if we just didn't have religion we would be safe and sound and all of that. But I live in one of the... Uh, most dangerous cities in America. And as you know, we're a violent people. We're a country in which people walk into schools and shoot us, shoot children. That's what we do. 
And, but almost all of the crime, the violent crime in the city I'm part of, has nothing to do with God or religion. In my own family, uh, I grew up, uh, uh, each of my parents were married three times each. I, I grew up uh, in a religious home on one weekend and then an anti-religious home in another weekend. Back and forth, back and forth. And I can tell you that though we all tried to love each other, the home with the Bible and the home without the Bible didn't fare much different in the way we related to one another. And it wasn't for lack of effort. There are wars and atrocities in the history of the world that are sourced in religion. It's the truth. We've already seen that. The religious and the violence in their heart. It's true. But now we're looking at the secular man and the violence in his heart and the way he's using his power against the innocent. And as you know, there are wars and atrocities and misuses in the history of the world sourced in atheism and anti-religion. It seems that the human heart is able to pick up a bat and swing it whether they have the Bible or not. There's something in us. And so it makes sense. Someone will say, I've seen biblical religion. I've seen the fumbling, faltering of Christians. I will look to the sanity of secularism. And then when we look at that, we find that we still perpetrate the same things. And we go into our neighborhood assemblies and we go into our secular neighborhood assemblies we go into our school meetings without God and things like this to our families without God and we still need therapy we still need self-help we're still searching for what could repair and mend because for all of our sane secularism we are still broken and the love we long for seems so difficult to find So at that point, we would say, someone might say, we should give up altogether. And I want to pause here and say, it makes sense that someone would feel that way, wouldn't it? If the world's gone mad like this and everywhere you look. But we haven't talked about something yet. Someone. Up to this point, all we've talked about is the hearts of men and women with religion or without it, with the Bible or without it, naming the name of Jesus or not. We've not yet spoken of Jesus, have we? Have we? What is it that we are meant to bring to the nations? Jesus, because biblical religion cannot save them, faltering Christians cannot save them, 
Secular skepticism, spiritual but not religious, cannot save us. Where must we look? Jesus. Now, notice how Jesus responds to each one. First, the response of Jesus to the meanness of biblical religion. Verse 23. I will begin in verse 19. The high priest then questioned him about his disciples and his teachings. Verse 20. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And now we begin to see what love for an enemy looks like. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, and you have to picture this, his hands are tied behind him. He's just been struck. And now the question. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? You see, his question for the meanness of biblical religion. Why? Is there violence in your heart? Why do you clench your fist and hit? Why? If I've done something wrong, tell me. Name it. Let's talk. And if I haven't done anything wrong, why are you so angry? The question comes to the religious in their pride. Why? Can any of the biblical religious be saved or rescued? I mean, you know what they go on to do. The answer is yes. May I remind you about one who came at night. He was so afraid. An edict, a policy had been passed down to the Pharisees, the Bible talkers, that if anyone followed Jesus, they would lose their seat in the synagogue, they would lose their status, which meant they would have lost their provision in the community. And so there were Pharisees who secretly followed Jesus but would not name it publicly. One of them, his name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus came at night to see Jesus so that no one would publicly know that he came to speak with Jesus. A couple of years later, after Jesus is crucified, who is it? Who is it that asks for the body of Jesus? Huh? Who is it that comes out of the dark into the light 
who comes from the shadows of hiding to make a public stand and identify with Jesus. It is Nicodemus. There is hope, even for one full of biblical religion, to be changed in Christ. And another, the question comes, why? The man riding on his horse to Damascus, full of violence in his heart in the name of God, self-righteous, believing himself pleasing to God with his violence, knocked off his horse, and the question comes, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is the same kind of question. Why do you hit me? Why do you persecute me? When we are dealing with biblical religion, our question for such a person is, why the anger? If God is so good and his world so full of beauty, faith, hope, love, and grace, as you say, why are you so angry? Why do you hit Jesus? Why do you strike those who bear his name? And with the question, some will hit all the more. But some will come to believe. I was in eastern Ukraine. This is years ago. The city Donetsk is now taken over, of course. But I was sitting with a man who was a part of uh, the Nazi reality in his home. And then with the transition at the end of World War II, the communist reality there, the communist reality that he had to deal with as a Christian. He said he was taken out into a field multiple times. He was a pastor. He was taken out into a field multiple times, surrounded by folks with soldiers. He was blindfolded. He thought every time he would die. He continued, by the grace of God, he said, to demonstrate love and compassion and service to those who threatened him so regularly to kill him. And they never killed him. Every time they took him out, they always brought him back. The head of uh, religious affairs, his name was Leo, one day burst through the doors of the church. Everyone was afraid. But as that man who had taken the pastor out again and again and again into the fields, threatening to kill him, but never did. As that man walked through the church and everyone was frightened, that man began to weep the closer he got to the front. And he fell to his knees and said, I want to know the God who gives you such strength and love. And that man was in a class I was teaching I was teaching the New Testament and Leo came up to me in broken English. 
He took my hands. Those were the same hands, the Saul of Tarsus hands, the hands that in the name of atheism in that case had beaten and threatened. He said, you preach, I seek God. Thank you. Can Saul's of Tarsus be saved? Yes. But what of Pontius Pilate's who say what is truth, but it's not a question, it's a deflection. They don't really want to know. What of them? Can they be saved? Can they be helped? Is there any hope? And you think to yourself, the centurion, the Roman soldier, at the cross, surely this man was innocent and gave praise to God. There with his weapons, beholding Christ, and coming to his senses before God. Notice the question for Pontius Pilate in verse 34. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Notice what Jesus says. Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? What Jesus is doing, he is no wilting flower. Pilate, are you asking this because you've heard this from others or do you really want to know? Notice the questions that Jesus begins to ask. Do you really want to know? Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting until now. May I ask you what servants would have been fighting until now? Peter? He's already run. He's warming himself by a fire. James, John, they fled. What servants would have been fighting for the Lord Jesus? Is it not what Jesus said in Matthew 26, 53, in the garden of Gethsemane, do you not think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? What servants would fight? When you think of an angel, do you think of a pudgy, pudgy little, cuddly, sort of Christmas kind of kind thing? When the first time you encounter an angel in the Bible, what do you encounter? A being with a sword. When you walk through the Old Testament scriptures and you encounter angels, what do you encounter? Warfare. In the Christmas morning, when the angels filled the sky, they are called the heavenly host. What is a host? The Greek word there is army. Army. The heavenly armies filled the skies and they weren't singing like a choir. It says they declared. And surely right now, when Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate, if it were the case that Michael the archangel could see, and I assume he could, wouldn't it be the case that legions are standing at the ready? 
Wouldn't it be the case if I could say it in some childlike way? They have their angelic hand on their swords and legions are ready. Wouldn't it be the case, because they do not fully understand what they are witnessing, we are told, wouldn't it be the case they would say, just say the word, Lord. Just say the word. And all the biblical religion and faltering Christianity and skeptical worldliness would bow before an overwhelming, thundering force Jesus is no weak victim. He is, as the ancient poem, The Dream of the Rude, tells us, the great warrior that climbs up on the tree. And he does not say the word. He will demonstrate his power without violence. He will take the violence on himself. And he will climb upon the cross. And there, right in the heart of the violence of biblical religion, right in the heart of the violence of secular wisdom, right in the heart of the violence of faltering Christianity, he will say out loud, forgive them. They don't know what they What is it that compels us to go? It isn't our biblical religion. It isn't our faltering Christianity. It isn't our attempts with skepticism and secularism. It can only be Jesus. And so, people are trying to locate him. And it's understandable why it's hard. We can say, yes, it's difficult. But now that we've talked about all the difficulty, can we now speak of Jesus? For he is not like any other. And if you could just see him, you too would have hope. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask in your name that you would attend our way Deliver us from the violence in our hearts, the manipulations in our hearts, all the frowning stamina for wickedness within our hearts and our faltering and fumbling. And Come to us as you did, Saul of Tarsus. Come to us as you did for that centurion. Come to us with the do you love me, do you love me, do you love me as you did with Peter. Rescue us, Lord. Enable us to see you. We ask it in your name. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.